are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us for today's live YouTube question and answer time. As you can tell, I'm not in the cab of my pickup truck as I was last uh, particular Thursday, but here I am, and we hope that the internet connection works well, and we hope that you can all hear and that you can send in your questions on the live chat and that I can deal with a lead question that we have a nice time together here today. Again, I want to thank you for joining me, and I don't pretend for a moment to know the answer to all your Bible questions. I think only God has all the answers to every question in the Bible, but uh, through the years, through the years of my pastoral ministry, through the years of me uh, preparing and publishing online a commentary on the entire Bible that some people find helpful, uh, I think that I've got a few things that I can share, maybe be helpful for us to think about or talk about together here on a Thursday afternoon or whatever time it is, wherever you reach you. One of the things... I like about our uh, time together here on Thursdays is that it really is a global time. I think if I wanted to reach more of an audience just in the United States, maybe I should do this a little bit later. But because I really love having a global audience, I'm happy to do it here 12 noon uh, Pacific time. And then uh, going on, I'm sorry, I'm trying to... Excuse me, fight back a sneeze. That's very rude, but you know how terrible that is when you feel the sneeze coming on. And I couldn't even reach over quick enough to mute the microphone, but hopefully you survived all that. Okay, let's go to our lead question for today. The lead question for today is simply this, is Jesus coming soon? And it comes from Paul and Dana. I think Paul and Dana sent in this question via Facebook. So here's their question. I've been teaching a home Bible study for about a year now. We're about to start the book of Revelation. A statement from David has confused me in trying to describe the statement. I feel like I understand, but I don't. The statement is, here's the statement. For 2,000 years, history has been on the brink of the consummation of all things, running parallel to the edge and not running towards a distant brink. My question is, how do I explain this timetable of parallel to the edge? I understand that God does not operate in time, but is there another way of describing how this works? Maybe an example. Thank you so much for enduring word and for your obedience to doing the work of the Lord. We really enjoy the teaching. Well, Paul and Dana, thank you for your kind words. Congratulations on teaching the home Bible study. I think that's a wonderful thing for you to do. Congratulations on going through the book of Revelation. And I just pray that maybe it can be a little bit of a help in the answer to you. And I I understand the difficulty in this concept. And so I'm going to illustrate it with you in a graph in just a few moments. But let me lay down some principles ahead of time. Okay, here's some basic principles. Number Principle number one, Jesus clearly told us to watch and be ready and to live in anticipation of his return. This is what Jesus said. Now, obviously, when Jesus walked this earth, his glorious second coming was at least 2,000 years or so down the road in, in linear history, counting by, you know, as you take off every year from the calendar. But he he didn't seem to want his followers to think that way. 
He wanted his followers to think that his return could be soon. So Jesus said things like this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Jesus, of course, did not say, hey, just chill. (laughs) It's going to be a long time. Don't worry about it. Jesus said things like this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, that emphasis, watching, readiness. Then Jesus said again in Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So Jesus wanted his people to live in anticipation of his return. Not to set dates, not not to be that kind of folk, but again, just to say, we're going to live in anticipation of the soon return of Jesus Christ. That's principle number one. Here's principle number two. It's good for Christians to live in the expectation of Jesus's return. Now, look, just like with anything, this can be taken out of balance. This can be taken to a strange and foolish extreme. But in general, it's good for Christians to live in the expectation of the return of Jesus. If Jesus told us to watch, to be ready, to be expectant, then it's good for us to live in the expectation of Jesus's return. And I'll go further than this. I believe, now again, what I'm telling you right now, that this isn't really found in the Bible, but I think it tracks along with what the Bible says. I believe that Jesus has given every generation reason to believe that his return was near. Because Jesus wants his people to live with that expectation. He wants people to be ready. So I believe that that's just very important. As you go through church history, you find many, many times people were living with the expectation of Jesus' return. Martin Luther and several other of the reformers in the 16th century, they believed that the Pope was the Antichrist and they believed that they were at the end of the age and Jesus was coming soon. And I believe that at least in some regard, that was a very helpful, good, spiritually healthy thing for them to believe. Now, again, we're understanding this can, just like any biblical truth, something can be taken to an ungodly and a foolish extreme. But in general, I think Jesus has given every generation some reason to believe that his return is near. So, principle number three, Christians of the past were not fools for expecting the soon return of Jesus. No, again, apart from any ungodly and foolish extremes, they were simply doing what Jesus wanted them to do. Now, when you bring these three principles together, I think we can say that there is a real sense that at the death, resurrection of Jesus, and then uh, 50 days later on Pentecost, after the ascension of Jesus, the the establishment of the church in uh, Acts chapter 2, that since that time, history has moved along the brink of the return of Jesus, not towards the brink. It's just a different way to think of it, to visualize it. So let me give you some charts that kind of help visualize it, at least in my mind. And look, I'm not very good with charts. I did the best I could with this. So please be gentle in your criticism of my charts. So here's the first way to 
can think of it. You got a timeline of history and it's moving towards the second coming of Jesus. And obviously then, here in the year 2022, we're closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ than they were in the year 500. So again, it's just a very linear way of seeing history. The timeline of history is moving towards this brink of the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that uh, conception is completely false. Of course, if we think of history uh, only in just a line, then that is what suggests. But I think that the way Jesus wants to order this thought and think of it in the establishment of his kingdom is to take that line and to turn it. And that's what I mean here with the second chart. Take a look now. Here's a different way to conceive of it. The timeline of history was rushing towards the consummation until, and we're just going to say AD 33. We're not trying to say the exact year and date of Jesus's crucifixion and the uh, day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But, but since that time, history took a turn and now it runs parallel to the brink of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And through the centuries, it just continues to go on. AD 100, 500, 1000, 1500, 2000, it's along the brink. And whenever God chooses, whenever God, it pleases the Lord, he will put it over that brink. So again, Paul and Dana, I hope that this is a way to just kind of understand this uh, concept of running alongside the consummation of history instead of running towards it. There is a very real sense in which we have been living in the last days ever since Acts chapter 2. Now, I must say that I believe right now, and as I record this video, it's October 13th, 2022, uh, all our live listeners know when that is, but uh, those of you who are going to watch it later on video, this is October 13th, year 2022. I believe that today we have reason, more reason to believe that Jesus is coming soon. Now, I believe that the Bible describes a fine Matthew chapter 24 and is spoken of again in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in the book of Revelation in the book of Daniel. I believe the stage is set politically, spiritually, culturally, and economically for the kind of scenario that God has said will happen in the very last days. Now, I would say this, as I look at the Bible and I look at our present age, I don't think that absolutely everything is in place, but for the things that are not in place, things in history can change very quickly when God's hand is upon them. So again, I would say that Jesus has given every generation reason to believe that his return is near because Jesus wants his people to live with that expectation and to be ready. However, I don't mind saying that I believe that we have more reason than ever to believe that the return of Jesus is near and to be ready. Now, again, I'll fully admit this can be taken into a strange and foolish and, and just an unbiblical extreme or fanaticism. But, but again, that can be done with almost any doctrine from the Bible. We're just here to take it as the Bible says, and we want to do what Jesus told us to do when watch and be ready and realize that in some sense, history is running right now alongside the brink, ready to go over whenever Jesus would appoint. 
Paul and Dana, I hope that's helpful for you. And uh, now we're going to go to our questions coming in on our live chat and uh, get some of those questions here. Let me go to them. First of all, from Horatio. Horatio says, what does the angel mean by the scripture of truth in Daniel chapter 10, verse 21? Here's that verse uh, in the New King James Version. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Well, Horatio, I don't think that there's anything fancy or profound in that phrase, the scripture of truth. I just simply think it's expressing that very basic biblical idea that the scriptures are true. It's, it's just a, a, a sense of emphasis. It's not trying to say that there are some scriptures that are true and some scriptures that aren't true. No, that's not the idea at all. But rather, it's just simply more the idea that scripture is true and the angel speaking to Daniel wanted to give that a special sense of emphasis. Hey, Daniel, this is true. Uh, it, it, it's like when Jesus would say, assuredly, I tell you the truth. Well, he wasn't trying to say that other times he wasn't saying the truth. But for whatever reason, at that particular moment, he wanted to give those words special emphasis special focus. And I think that's exactly what's being spoken of there in that reference to the scripture of truth in Daniel chapter 10, verse 21. I'm going to the next question here from Joshua. Joshua says, can you explain what the millennial reign will be like and why is it necessary? Okay, uh, Joshua, I, I'll, I'll explain it to you this way. I always like to preface any comments that I would have about uh, eschatology, about prophecy, about the return of Jesus, the millennium, the final judgment, the catching away of the church. I always like to preface, preface any of those remarks by acknowledging that there is a diversity of opinion among Christians about these things, and there has been ever since the days of the early church. So I, I, I'm going to tell you exactly how I see it, but I recognize that there's Christians who love the Lord and take the Bible seriously, who see things differently. But you're not asking their opinion on today's question. You're asking my opinion, so I'm happy to give it to you. Now, there are some people who believe that this millennial reign of Jesus is symbolic, only a spiritual thing, and that we're in it right now. I don't believe that that's true. There are other people who believe that this millennial reign of Jesus is real and it's the job of the church, of the people of God, to, obviously with God's help and empowering, but it's the job of God's people to transform society and all the institutions of society to fulfill the reign of Jesus Christ upon this earth. That's often called uh, post-millennialism. So the, there's an idea that the millennium is just symbolic and spiritual. That's often called amillennialism. There's the idea that it's literal, but put into a reality by God working through the church in our present age, which could take 10,000 years, but they say that's going to happen. 
But the third way of thinking about it is the way that I have, is that this millennium describes a literal 1,000 years of the actual rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this earth, enthroned in Jerusalem, and through his servants. I believe those servants will be uh, the resurrected saints throughout the ages, that Jesus will assign them duties and that they will rule over those who, number one, have survived the great calamity in the final years before Jesus gloriously returns and the catastrophe of Jesus's return. So it's the survivors on the earth, number one. And number two, those who have been uh, deemed worthy to enter into what we would call the millennial earth by the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. I believe that that judgment in Matthew chapter 25 is a judgment between who is allowed to enter into, so to speak, the millennial earth and who is not. So you'll have the citizens or the population of the millennial earth, and then you'll have those who rule and reign over them, which I believe will be the saints of generations past in their resurrected glory Uh, administering, ruling, and reigning with Jesus Christ. Now, why is it necessary? I believe there's several reasons why the millennium is necessary. Number one, I believe the millennium is necessary because uh, it fulfills the plan of God in having an actual, literal, physical rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this earth. It means that for uh, an appreciable period, a thousand years, that Satan is bound, his activity on earth has ceased, there will still be the flesh and the world to deal with, but no longer the devil, and that God will triumph. It it won't be able to said that throughout all generations, Satan has had his way, so to speak. Now, we all understand God in his great sovereignty, God in his plan, uh, he, he works even through what he allows Satan to do right now. So we're, we're not saying that God isn't on the throne, but there is a real sense in which Satan is, as the Bible calls him, the God of this age. And, and it won't be like that for all of history. So it's just right that God would, in a very personal, direct way, reign over planet Earth uh, for that extended period. That's one aspect. But here's another aspect. As I understand the book of Revelation and how it lays out, the millennium happens before the great white throne judgment, the final judgment where those who will be consigned for eternity to the lake of fire will be judged. And I think it's very important that the millennium happens before the great white throne judgment because what the millennium will be is as perfect an environment on earth as could be possibly conceived. I mean, as perfect an environment that can happen with fallen men and women still on earth, because even though those who rule and reign will be in the resurrected glory, the citizens of earth will still be fallen human beings, but there will be a perfect government administered by Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is important that this happens before the final judgment, the great white throne judgment to stop every mouth and to make sure that no one can claim the excuse that their real problem was that they grew up in a bad environment 
or they lived in a bad environment. This is all what we want to do, isn't it? We want to blame our bad environment. Now, I'm not trying to say that a bad environment has no effect upon a person. Of course it does. But that's not our fundamental problem. The fundamental problem of humanity is not that we're great people who have been corrupted by our bad environment. We are sinful people that have been made even worse by a bad environment. And what the millennium will show is that for a thousand years, there will be as close to a perfect environment as there can be on planet Earth, and mankind will still rebel against God at the end of that thousand years. So I think it's very important on principle that the millennium happens before the great white throne judgment. So Joshua, I hope that helps answer the question as to um, why I believe the millennium is necessary. I could go on for more reasons, but but I think that this is uh, a way that we fulfill this call that God has given us to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Okay, on to the next question from Alicia. Alicia says, why do you think the women to men ratio is what it is in the church today? Now, I think what Alicia is speaking of is just the fact that it seems by all accounts, excuse me, let me go back to that particular screen. It seems by all accounts that there are more women than men in the church today and has probably been true throughout much of church history. Well, I I could say that I, I don't know that the Bible gives us an answer to this. At most, I would say it gives us a hint. There are a few passages that hint. I, I won't say that it's specifically said, but it hints at something that some of us may think we know by observation or by intuition, that women are more spiritually sensitive than men. Now, again, we're speaking in generalities. I have no doubt that you could find a man that is more spiritually sensitive than a woman. So we're speaking in generalities here. But in general, I think there's something to be said for the idea that women are generally more spiritually sensitive than men. Men, perhaps, again, speaking in general, can be more hardened, more insensitive, more not aware or not caring about spiritual things. Now, this is a great benefit to women when it comes to the things of the Spirit of God, with the Bible, with the person and work of Jesus Christ. They they may, again, I want to stress this because we're speaking in generalities, but in general, women may be more likely to respond to a moving of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a flip side to that, though, too. It may be that in general, women may as well be more likely to be moved by a deceptive spirit. And so this greater spiritual sensitivity of women has both something marvelous and wonderful about it and something cautious and uh, a legitimate warning about it. And so I think we should observe that. Now, again, I... I'm first on the line to say, I don't think the scriptures directly teach that. Maybe it can be gained from a few hints from scripture. But to me, I think this is something that perhaps, and again, you can disagree with me if you please. I'm not offended by that. But perhaps we 
understand this by intuition. And so I, I would simply say that that could really be, now that's one aspect of it, but here's another aspect of it. Uh, I, I think that a feminized Christianity could needlessly um, turn off men. And I'm not saying that the dominant note of Christianity should be either feminine or masculine. But if things go to either extreme, if a Christian expression is hyper-feminine, it's going to have an effect. If it's hyper-masculine, it's going to have an effect. And I don't think that there's any doubt that at least in the Western world, I'm not going to speak for beyond the Western world in our present age, but in the Western world, the tendency has been for the church to have a more feminine type expression. Again, we're speaking in generalities, so any individual congregation, the, the effect may be different. And that may be in similar a way that men are just sort of more turned off to the things of Christianity and to the things of the Spirit. So I'll suggest those two things to you, and maybe that's helpful for you there, Alicia. Let me go on to the next question here that comes from L.S. Asks, how was it possible for the fall of Adam and Eve when they were so near to the glories of God? And why do believers also sometimes fall when they have the Holy Spirit? You know, L.S., I think it just shows that we as human beings are constructed in a glorious and curious ways. We are, as human beings, we are made in the image of God. And of course, that's very specifically said of Adam and Eve, but it's true for all of humanity because it's repeated elsewhere in the scriptures and it's said of all of humanity, not just Adam and Eve, but you could say especially of them, created in the image of God. And there's something glorious and powerful about that. Yet, we have human, failable, and since the fall, I know this doesn't answer the question regarding Adam and Eve, but since the fall, we have fallen natures. And so we are an interesting combination of both powerful, beautiful, inherent glory before God, having been made in his image, and sinful, corrupt, and liable to sin and rebellion. Now, Adam and Eve were not created with a sin nature, but they were created with the potential for choosing otherwise. They were created for the potential to choose against God if they pleased, and God deliberately made them uh, with that potential. But there's something I want to remind you of, L.S., and remind all of our uh, viewers, our listeners to. And I, again, I think this is important to consider. I want to remind you that God's great goal for humanity, his, his plan of the ages, if you want to put it in those terms, is not to bring us back to the glory of the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve fell. No, God's great desire, his goal in his plan for the ages is to take us beyond what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before the fall. 
Here's a way I like to explain it. We gain more in Jesus Christ than we ever lost in Adam. I think that's a wonderful way to think of it, a wonderful way to express it. We gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. There is something greater than the innocence of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And greater than innocence is redemption. Now, you you may not feel that way, but I'll tell you, God feels that way. And there's something greater in God's work of redemption than there ever was in his work of creating Adam and Eve in their innocence. Now, I'm not trying to say that his work of creating Adam and Eve in their innocence was not glorious. It was, but it's even more glorious, his work of redemption. So, um, God had a definite plan in creating Adam and Eve with the capability to choose against God and his will. God didn't make them do it, not at all, but he gave them the capability to do it. And why do believers also sometimes fall when they have the Holy Spirit? Because um, our salvation is not yet complete. As, As I like to say, I was teaching last night at uh, my home church, Calvary Chapel of Santa Barbara, on the Wednesday night service, and, and I used this figure as we were teaching through First Peter chapter 2, reminding everybody that um, the Bible says that for believers, we have been saved in the past tense, we are being saved in the present tense, and we will be saved in the future. There's a very real sense in which our salvation is not yet complete. And it's very good for us to think of that and keep that in mind. So I hope that's helpful for you there, LS. God has a work to do in us that he's doing now before our salvation is complete with resurrection. Let me go on to the next question from our TWR360 viewer, Alex, I want to welcome our TWR360 audience. So pleased that you could join us here today. Uh, It's wonderful to have you with us. So welcome, TWR360 audience. Okay, um, here's the question. My brother, a born-again Christian, now believes that we can and should be casting demons from believers. There are many people that support this belief. You can watch a great number of videos on the subject, and they cite a great deal of scriptural references. How do I counter his overwhelming number of arguments? I've heard the evidence presented by those deeply entrenched of the view. I will be honest, much of it is compelling, and I struggle myself with this question now. Um, Alex, I'm with you. I do not believe that Christians can be demon-possessed in the sense that they are controlled by an indwelling demonic spirit and they cannot um, be free from demonic control by resisting the devil and seeing the devil flee. Um, I don't believe that a Christian can be indwelt and controlled by a demonic spirit. And and there are many reasons why I believe that very simply. And the most simple direct reason I would believe that is that the Christian is the possession of Jesus Christ. 
We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are purchased by Jesus, body, soul, and spirit. And to me, it's unthinkable that Jesus Christ would share habitation with a demonic spirit. You know, when we're talking about Jesus indwelling a person, we're not just using spiritual language. That's how the New Testament talks about it. And the idea that Jesus, that an individual is like a duplex and Jesus lives in one part of that individual and a, a demon lives in another part, Jesus says, no, this person belongs to me. In addition, I don't believe, I, I would disagree with anybody who says that we see examples of demonic possession. There is one real in-depth profile of a demonically possessed person in this, the, the New Testament. And that person is the gathering demoniac. And he is controlled by a demonic spirit. Now, People who want to say that Christians can be demon-possessed, oftentimes what they like to do is blur the line between possession and oppression and just say it's all the same thing. Well, I don't believe so. I definitely believe that Christians can be demon-oppressed. And I think that many, many Christians are not aware of Satan's attacks and devices and the way that he attacks. And I think Christians need to be much more proactive, much more active, much more discerning in their uh, efforts of spiritual warfare without having to believe at all that a Christian can be demon-possessed. Listen, this is what the Bible says to believers. It says it in James. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I don't believe you could have just said that to the gathering demoniac. I don't believe you could just say to the gathering demoniac, hey, brother, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. No, there was something so overwhelming in him that it had to be cast out by somebody else. I don't believe that the believer gets to that place. Again, I, I want to say that statement can be taken wrong because I do believe that in spiritual warfare, it's helpful to have our brothers and sisters come around us and be an aid and assistance and help us in resisting the devil so that he'll flee from us. But, but fundamentally, a Christian who's demon-possessed is so occupied and overwhelmed with a demonic spirit that they are helpless unless someone else delivers them. Now, I have had so many people, I've heard it from a lot of people through my many years of being a pastor. It's not like I hear a story like this every day, but look, I've been a pastor for some 40 years. I, I, I hear a lot of stories over the years. No, 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 you don't understand. This person who I know was a Christian had a demon cast out of them and they go, listen, I don't know what to say about that. I gave up a long time ago believing that I had to explain every strange spiritual experience. I don't know. So if there's some spiritual experience that leads somebody to believe, oh no, Christians can be demon-possessed, I, I, I don't know. Why do I have to explain it? 
There's weird things that happen in the spiritual realm. Look, there's weird things that happen in the material realm. There's weird things that happen in the spiritual realm. And I'm not going to change what the Bible clearly states about the purchased possession of Jesus Christ, what it means to be born again by God's spirit and an adopted son or daughter of God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And all of that person belonging body, soul, and spirit, their body being the temple, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to change any of that because of a spiritual experience that's hard to explain. So Alex, that's really the standpoint that I come from. Now, I would want to say this. I've, I've been kind of hard on those who believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. But, but I want to be a little bit hard now on Christians who don't believe that Christians can be, they believe that Christians cannot be demon-possessed. You need to take spiritual warfare more seriously than you do. Because while I don't believe that demonic spirits can indwell and possess and overwhelm and control a believer in the sense of possession, I do believe that they can be stubborn, persistent, shouting liars virtually as if they were on a person's shoulder screaming lies continually in their ear. And I think that aggressive and proactive spiritual warfare needs to take place to rebuke such demonic spirits and send them on their way. Not casting them out of a person, but you you don't have to possess somebody. If you're a demonic spirit, a demonic spirit doesn't have to possess someone in order to do damage. They can do tremendous damage from the outside with the lies that they say over and over again. So that, that's the best way I would explain it. Um, and again, I, I would challenge believers who strongly think that Christians cannot do spiritual warfare more seriously. The Bible says that we have three classic enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The main sphere of sanctification is in the flesh. But we dare not blind ourselves to the activity of Satan against the people of God. Not working from the inside out, but from the outside in. Okay, hope that's helpful for you there, Alex. Next question comes from Moon. Will the Holy Spirit be taken away after the rapture or both? Okay, Moon, again, I give you my quick preference that people from different Christian backgrounds see this in different ways, but I'll give you my understanding of this. I believe that the Holy Spirit is not taken away from the earth, but simply removed from a hindering place. The reason why I do not believe that the Holy Spirit is taken from the earth is simply because um, the Bible seems to indicate in the book of Revelation that there is a innumerable multitude that comes to faith in Christ during this last seven-year period. And that innumerable multitude can only come to faith because uh, the Holy Spirit's working in their lives. People can't come to faith unless the Holy Spirit is at work in their life. 
So that, that's how I would explain it, that the Holy Spirit is not removed from the earth, but actually his influence is, his hindering presence is taken away. And um, that allows, that gives room, so to speak, for Satan to do the damage that he wants to do upon the earth. Okay, uh, before I go on to the next question, I just need to say that next week, I will not be here in my home studio. I'm going to be in Israel next week. And God willing, I'll do the live Q&A from Israel. Now, I need to give a preference to that, preference to that. Um, I will not be able to do it, you know, live from some really cool place, uh, you know, with a background of Caesarea or the city of Dan or the Sea of Galilee or something like that, because it'll be 10 o'clock at night, uh, Israel time, when I do it the same time and place next week. But uh, I will be able to do it from, hopefully, if everything goes well, I'll be able to do it from Israel next week, and we'll just do a live Q&A from Israel. I hope you can join me for that. Next question comes from Texas, the lioness who asks, I question my salvation based on hearing so many extraordinary testimonies. I cannot give the exact moment or date of my noting where I noticed anything immediate. Any advice? Well, Texas, God bless you. I just want you to be assured that you don't need to have a singular salvation experience to know that you are truly saved that you're truly in God's kingdom and that you've truly been declared righteous because of your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's just how it is with some people. Some people come to faith in a crisis moment. There's a moment, maybe it's at a church service, maybe it's, you know, on their own, maybe it's with a friend, maybe it's at a crusade, whatever. It could be in any kind of circumstance, but they have a definite moment. They can say, on this day, on this time, I know I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I repented and I believed. But there's many other people who that's really not the case with them. They say, you know what? I can't put my finger. I just know that I believe there, there was a man. He was a uh, surgeon general under the president, Ronald Reagan. Uh, C. Everett Koop, I believe was his name. And if I'm remembering the story right, this was the story of his salvation. He said that his wife was a believer and he started going to church with his wife. And all he knows is this, is that when he started going to church with his wife, the preacher would speak and he had himself saying that he disagreed with just about everything the preacher said. Preaching from the Bible, of course, preaching a faithful message. Well, a few years later, he found himself in church, just continuing to go to church every Sunday with his wife. And it struck him that the preacher's message hadn't changed. He still was preaching the truth from the Bible. But now... He found that he agreed with just about everything that the preacher had to say. And he couldn't put his finger on a particular time, a particular moment, but he could just see, hey, I didn't used to believe or live my life by any of this. Now I do believe and I do live my life by this. And without being able to put his finger on a particular time or place, he could say, yes, I know that I'm a believer. So be comforted. That is just the wonderful story of salvation for you and no doubt for many, many other people. 
So your story, you may feel a little self-conscious about it because you feel like it's not dramatic enough. Let me tell you, it's plenty dramatic enough for the Lord. He, uh, he's pleased by it. And he works in other lives the same way that he has worked through yours. Okay, next question comes from Adrian, who asks, uh, if I am separated from my wife, are my prayers being hindered? And should I force myself to reconcile even if I don't want to? Okay, Adrian, let, let me say to begin with, I, I'm going to speak to your question. But especially when it comes to these matters of family problems and family dynamics, marriage, children, you know, uh, other extended relatives, whenever it comes to these problems, what you really need is to sit down with a wise, godly pastor and tell him everything and receive guidance from him because to, to really understand your situation and to really give good godly counsel would mean going into greater depth than I can do addressing your question in a couple minutes. But I, I can give a basic outline of an answer. But I, I always like to say that when it comes to these issues of marriage and family and such. Look, I would say that there's obviously something not right Peter says in one of his letters that we should dwell with our wives according to understanding so that our prayers will not be hindered. And there's something disrupted in your relationship with your wife. Now, how much of that is due to circumstances? How much of that is due to you? How much of that is due to her? That's something you need wise pastoral counsel on. But I hope, Adrian, that you're praying that God would work some miracles and make a reconciliation. Now, I, re reconciliation is not the right thing in each and every circumstance, but it is the highest good. It's the highest goal. And, and if you have two people, two believers, there's really no um, godly reason why two believers can't be reconciled. If both of them will die to self, if both of them will really live surrendered lives to the Holy Spirit, if both of them will do what the Bible says, husbands loving their wives with the sacrificial love the way that Christ loves the church, and wives submitting to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, if they will do that, there's no reason why couples can't come together. But, but we know they don't always happen. And if the conduct of a husband or a wife is so against the marriage that it makes reconciliation impossible, well, that's why God gives permission, understanding the hardness of men's hearts for divorce. But again, it has to be under biblical, qualified grounds and reasons. So, I can appreciate, Adrian, that you say right now that you don't want to reconcile, but you need to get some wise pastoral counsel and see um, if it really is in God's wisdom for you to continue to seek that uh, or just to, so to speak, let it go before the Lord. Going on to the next question from Dusanka. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. If I'm not, please forgive me. Dusanka asks, 
Should I read a book about Jesus from Ellen G. White? What are your thoughts on the Seventh-day Adventists? Dusanka, um, I would be careful with the writings of Ellen G. White. And Seventh-day Adventists who are deeply committed to Ellen G. White's writings and deeply committed to very traditional Seventh-day Adventism, that's a problem. Now, when you're talking about any group, any denomination, so to speak, you're going to have a variety within that denomination. And there are many Seventh-day Adventists, if not most Seventh-day Adventists, that of course are our brothers and sisters in Christ, who I would say, in my opinion, just happen to believe some strange and unbiblical doctrines. However, there are other Seventh-day Adventists, I would regard these as few in number, who seem to value Ellen G. White even more than Jesus himself. Again, I would say that's probably a very few in number. But traditional Seventh-day Adventism, Ellen G. Whiteism, so to speak, has a lot more difficulties than the way most Seventh-day Adventists live out their faith today. And so I, I would be careful with it. But Dusanka, I, I'll be very straightforward with you and everybody else in our viewing um, group today. I am not big at all on um, banned book lists. I'm not big on um, telling people, you can't read that. You can't, don't read that. I, I'm more on the side, look, r- read what you want to read, but read it with discernment and read it like a Berean, as described in the book of Acts, those who heard the preaching of Paul and compared it to the scriptures, they searched the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so. So that's kind of um, my thought with that. Jennifer asked this question, who do you think the clay is in the feet of iron? You know, Jennifer, you're referring back to this great image in the book of Daniel that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw. And this image was something that was gold at the top, uh, silver through the chest and arms. The abdomen and midsection was bronze. The legs were iron and the feet were iron mixed with clay. I don't know if we identify any particular group with the clay, other than just to say it's a weakened form of the legs. It's somewhat degraded. It's not as glorious. You see a real downward progression from gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And so instead of trying to identify the clay with a specific group, I just think it's indicated as being connected to the iron legs, of course, but just a further step down from them. That's kind of how I would express it. Robert asks this question, if our salvation is not complete, then isn't it of works? Oh, Robert, that's a very good question. And I, I welcome you because you're, you're uh, speaking to something that I mentioned before, that our salvation is spoken of in the New Testament in three tenses. In the past, you have been saved. Uh, in the present, you're being saved. And in the future, you will be saved. 
And I'm just saying that our salvation is not complete until our resurrection. Robert, no, it doesn't mean that it's of works at all, because I'm here to tell you, not you, not me, not anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, none of us earn our resurrection. Our resurrection is the free, gracious gift of God, just as much as our justification is, just as much as our adoption into God's family is. Uh, And in some sense, as our sanctification is, because there's at least an aspect of our sanctification that is received in Jesus Christ. Of course, there's our effort and activity involved in that. But fundamentally, if it's not received, there's nothing for us to have an activity with. So no, Robert, I, I don't believe that our resurrection is of our works at all. No, not one bit. There's nothing you or I or anyone else can do to earn our resurrection. It is the free gift of God. We're just saying that the completion of our salvation won't be until we are resurrected. Hey, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the time where I will have to deal with sin and weakness and depravity no more, that it's gone. Well, that time is not yet, but it will be in the future with our resurrection, when we're in the presence of the Lord, when we are with him in the glory of heaven. Now, God has so many wonderful things to do in our life right now in the here and now, but we look forward to that ultimate consummation of our salvation in the resurrection. Alfredo has a question. What are your thoughts on Christian nationalism? I agree with it, but people need biblical doctrine rather than ecumenism. Well, Alfredo, I'll just give you my quick thought on Christian nationalism. I, I see it as so defined so broadly and defined so contradictorily, if that's a word, that um, I don't know what to make of it in that sense. But I'll just give you some general principles. I believe, I would hope that the laws of any nation, forget about the United States, any nation, I would hope that the laws of any nation would, to the highest degree possible, reflect the heart, the wisdom, and the morality of God. Is that controversial? Would we rather uh, other religions, or would we rather that rank secularism uh, influences and defines the laws? So I would hope this for any nation. Again, I'm speaking to you from the United States, but it's, I, I would just hope that would be true. I think that would be a blessing for any nation. Now, here's the, the kicker. I don't think that that should ever happen by force, by coercion. I would even say that it should never even happen by minority rule. I think the way for that to happen is for the population to be overwhelmingly born again and Christianized, so to speak, truly discipled in Jesus Christ. But if you had any nation on earth, choose whatever nation you want. If you had any nation on earth where, and again, let's just pretend, 80% of the population was truly born again and truly disciples of Jesus Christ, 
I think that the laws that would come from the democratic process in that nation would, or at least should, be largely God-honoring in their heart, in the morality, in the way that they're carried out. So, I think it's good for nations to have laws, to have practices, to have policies that reflect the heart, the mind, the wisdom of God as revealed in his word. But I don't think that that should ever happen by coercion. I think that it should happen through the population being truly Christianized in the best sense, not in a superficial way, but as true disciples of Jesus. Now, somebody can write less. Well, is that ever going to happen? Well, I don't know. It seems unlikely to me to happen anytime soon, but it would be glorious. Now, here's the difficulty with that. Let's say that were to happen. Let's say that were to happen in a particular nation. And the population in the year 2025, three years from now, is overwhelmingly Christian and truly disciples of Jesus Christ, 80% of the country. And they pass laws. Oh, I haven't got to do with all that. Now, what's going to keep the population in that place? You know, I, I don't know what it's going to be like in the next generation. I don't know what it's going to be like in the generation of that. So I would say that the perfect administration of God's heart, God's wisdom, God's morality, the perfect administration of that awaits for the rule and reign of Jesus Christ upon this earth. I trust Jesus to perfectly implement the law of God. I don't know that I trust any human beings to do it. Is it good that things move in a general direction to be more like that? Of course it's good. But we're never going to see this in fruition until the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Alfredo, those are some of my thoughts on this. Let me go now to the next question from Paul. Paul asked this. Is there a way, if one preferred, to prioritize commentaries or other similar publications from believing writers as opposed to secular or cult writers? Uh, okay, Paul, this is what I'm a little bit confused about with your question. Because when you say commentaries, I immediately think of Bible commentaries. I mean, I'm sitting in a room filled with Bible commentaries. I am a Bible commentator. If people know me outside of these YouTube question and answer, they probably know me from my online Bible commentary, EnduringWord.com, that's completely free, no ads, no catches, no VIP zone. It's just out there as a free resource, and there's some people that find it helpful. And so, Paul, if that's what you're talking about, um, I am certainly going to prioritize commentary on the Bible um, from believers, rather than from people from other religions or uh, from the secular world. Now, I, I will say, I have found it very interesting to uh, look up what uh, Jewish rabbis have taught about certain things and understood. I, I won't make that determinative in my understanding of the text, but sometimes it can shed some wonderful light on it. Praise God for that. But I'm most interested in what believers have to say because the Bible tells us that it's truth, that God's wisdom is spiritually discerned. 
that it's not just a matter of having enough smarts, enough training, enough skill in the original languages, but it's a matter of spiritual wisdom that God gives to his children. All right, before I get to our last question, let me just say, I hope you can join us next week where God willing, and if I live, I'm going to be doing the Q&A on a Thursday evening for me from Israel. Hey, I'll tell you about what we're doing on our Israel tour. I'll tell you what we fun we've been having and all, but I hope you can join me because I anticipate that it'll be a wonderful time. Okay, last question comes again from Moon and asks, dreams and visions, how much credence do we give them? I had a dream of fire in form of a cross in my hand. What can I find in biblical symbolism? Okay, Moon, I know some Christians that I know and love and respect who kind of put a lot more weight on dreams than I would. I I definitely do believe that it's possible for God to speak to people in dreams. It happened in the scriptures many times. One thing interesting, the vast majority of times, and again, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so forgive me if my math isn't right. There's something like eight times, again, this is off the top of my head. I might be incorrect on the numbers, but the general proportion is correct. There's something like eight times in the Bible where God speaks to somebody in a dream And I think all but a couple of those, God is speaking to non-believers. So I I think that it would be more common for God to speak to those who do not believe in dreams than to speak to believers in dreams. But um, I, I would just be careful of trying to read too much into them and simply make it a matter of prayer and seeking the Lord. Lord, I had this dream. If there's something you're trying to tell me through this dream then Lord, would you just uh, confirm it to me through your word, confirm it to me uh, in some other way. Uh, But if if this is from you, Lord, would you speak to me about it? And just bring it before God, pray about it, seek the Lord. And if the Holy Spirit gives you some kind of confirmation on it, then, you know, go gently with it. I, I would not do anything radical in my life if I'm a believer now, I'm all for, and I do believe that God speaks to many unbelievers, and today in the Muslim world, God is speaking to Muslims, leading them to Christ, giving them an initial step, an initial direction, appointing uh, them towards Jesus or someone who will give them the gospel through dreams. I believe in that. But for the believer, we have a more sure word. So, if you think that God has prompted something in a dream— Ask God for confirmation in and through his word. And don't seek God speaking to you. I I would never counsel a Christian to do this, to go to bed at night and say, okay, Lord, I really want to hear from a word from you. Would you speak to me in a dream? No, friend, if you want to hear a word from God, open up your Bible and read. And if God chooses to bring a word to you in some other way, then, then confirm it in and through his word. All right, well, I hope that's helpful for you. And I just, again, want to say thank you to everybody who could join us today. As I said before, next week, God willing, and if we live, I will be talking to you from Israel. And uh, let's see how that goes. I'll tell you all about my Israel trip. Matter of fact, I think it's going to be two Thursdays in a row that I'll be speaking to you from Israel. I do hope you can join me. Thank you. I hope you can use the Bible resources that we have on our YouTube channel, on our podcasts, at the website, on the great app that we have. Um, God seems to be using those things, and I'm delighted to tell you about them. 
God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And I hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.